Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 19, The Inexplicable Turn. I'm Brandon Seal. When the Narvaez expedition departed Cuba in March of 1528, its destination had been the so-called Rio de las Palmas, or the modern-day Soto La Marina, a river which lies about halfway between Brownsville and Tampico. Castilian knowledge of the geography of the Gulf Coast in 1528 was pretty limited. The only man who had even claimed to have sailed around the Gulf was the Narvaez expedition pilot, who went on to demonstrate his chops by high-centering the expedition's ships on some shallow sandbars three days onto the job, and then unloading the expedition on the western coast of Florida instead of the eastern coast of Mexico. But there was one geographical feature that apparently everyone on the expedition knew to look for in identifying the Rio de las Palmas. Mountains that were visible from the sea. This seems to be why Cabeza de Vaca makes two conspicuous mentions in his account of places where he didn't see mountains, namely Florida and the Prickly Pear Ranges of South Texas. It's a strange thing, of course, to mention a topographical feature that you don't see, unless, of course, it's precisely the topographical feature that you're looking for. Then, in the summer of 1535, seven years into their residency on the American continent, the four remaining Narvaez expeditionaries and their growing entourage of native companions, quote, began to see mountains which seemed as if they ran in a line to the coast, end quote. These mountains, they learned, were only about 50 miles from the sea, which meant they would have been visible from a passing ship. It was the most tantalizing clue they had yet found, and though they couldn't have known it, they were indeed closer to the Rio de las Palmas than they had ever been so far, or ever would be again. Since escaping from their masters in South Texas the year before, the expeditionaries had been traveling inland, parallel to the coast, rather than along it. This is because even as far back as 1530 or so, Cabeza de Vaca had noted that the inland tribes seemed to be just a bit more agreeable than the coastal ones a pattern that apparently held all the way down the Texas-Mexico coast. Do you remember the coastal Quevenes tribe, the Indians that gratuitously beat up Cabeza de Vaca and Lope de Oviedo just to give them a taste of what their companions were suffering? Or perhaps do you remember the Camones, the Indians who had bragged to Durantes and Esteban of how they had killed the fifth raftful of their comrades just for sport? Things were different now, however. Whereas before... The four expeditionaries had been unwanted beggars. Now they were esteemed medicine men. They healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and even raised a man from the dead. Soon, even people with no apparent affliction were coming from miles around just to see the mysterious medicine men. And the four expeditionaries were now spending as much as three hours a day curing people and making the sign of the cross over every morsel of food that they ate. Now the upside to this is that the four expeditionaries were paid pretty well for their troubles. It wasn't uncommon, in fact, for their grateful patients to give them everything they owned. Beads, food, red ochre, bows and arrows, and flint stones, which frankly were worth more than gold to the natives. Wisely, however, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban had early on adopted the custom of giving away everything they received, something which generated a lot of goodwill for them. And eventually, as the volume of their cures increased, it began to generate a lot of wealth for the people around them as well. Of course, at some point, 
it kind of started to feel like their followers weren't hanging around so much for the religious experience as they were for the material benefits that it brought. And as the four expeditionaries and their party continued to move from village to village in northern Tamaulipas, their entourage began to grow exponentially, from dozens into the hundreds. Quote, the number of our followers became so great that we couldn't control them, end quote. And soon, the mob behind them began to take on a life of its own. Their followers began to preemptively ransack every village they entered, though they did so with the consolation to the victims that all the victims had to do to make themselves whole was join up themselves with this merry band and help them ransack the next village. And so it was amidst all this social upheaval and uncertainty that the expeditionaries first saw these mountains, presumably the Sierra de Pamoranes or the Sierra de Cerralvo, separating modern-day Nuevo León from Tamaulipas. It was a moment of ecstasy for them. If for the last seven years they'd been surviving on blind faith, in front of them now was something tangible that suggested they might be closer than ever to returning to their old lives. And so they started heading directly for the mountains, trying to march there as quickly as they could, but they were stopped by their own followers. Their followers, or maybe we should call them their handlers, wanted to steer them instead towards some related or allied peoples because, quote, they didn't want their enemies to be benefited such as it was by seeing us, end quote. Here, in the summer of 1535, Cabeza de Vaca and his companions were within sight of the mountains that they had been searching for since 1528. They were just a couple of weeks march away from the Rio de las Palmas, and a few more, perhaps, to Panuco, where they knew that other Castilians had established a town. And here's the really confusing part that I've never seen anyone make real sense of out of the narrative. What it sounds like is that their handlers actually want to take them toward the coast, which would be, of course, in the direction that the expeditionaries knew Panuco to be. They told the expeditionaries that there wasn't anything worth seeing up in the high desert, no people and no food. And to prove their point, they sent out scouts who returned confirming that there was allegedly nothing to be found anywhere nearby. But something about this made the expeditionaries grow angry, or maybe just frustrated. It seems like they were tired of feeling out of control. And so for some really hard-to-say reason, they dug in their heels here and pivoted and turned almost 180 degrees in the opposite direction. They turned away from the mountains, away from the coast, away from Panuco. They turned northwest. It's baffling, frankly. And Cabeza de Vaca does little to help resolve the mystery when he offers us essentially three justifications for he and his companions' inexplicable turn. The first reason we've already mentioned, and seems to be a consistent thread throughout the text, namely, that the four expeditionaries were afraid of coastal peoples. Quote, All the peoples of the coast are very evil, and we prefer to travel through the land because the inland peoples have better dispositions and treated us better. End quote. And by the way, the archaeological record lends credence to this cultural distinction between inland and coastal tribes, according to archaeologist Thomas Hester in a paper that he published on the Texas State Center for the Study of the Southwest website, where he notes that there is a major shift in how ceramics were used or not used, starting about 25 miles from the shoreline all throughout this part of the world. And whether they knew it or not, the expeditionaries had good reason to be fearful of the coastal tribes close to Panuco. Because the tribes in those areas, rather like the inhospitable inhabitants of Florida, had already been exposed to Castilian slaving expeditions, 
The Castilian settlement at Panuco was frequently used for launching slave raids into the interior. And Castilian slavers who fell into the hands of natives often found themselves flayed alive with their hides hung on the walls of native temples. Conquistador Bernal Diaz del Castillo, no stranger to fierce Indians himself, observed that the Indians of modern-day Tamaulipas, quote, were the most barbaric of all those that the Spaniards had encountered in Mexico, end quote. And interestingly, it's still one of the most violent parts of the continent today. So anyway, maybe the four expeditionaries picked up on something sinister in the natives' insistence on trying to march them down into their relatives' lands on the coast and refused to go with them for that reason. Of course, that still doesn't explain why the expeditionaries made a complete 180 rather than just continuing inland a little bit further. And so Cabeza de Vaca offers us a second justification. Quote, Ultimately, we did this because by traveling overland, we would better come to experience its details, so that if God our Lord were served by bringing one of us out and returning us to the land of Christians, he would be able to give an account of all we had seen. End quote. Now, some older, more romantic chroniclers of Cabeza de Vaca have taken this as evidence of the expeditionaries' wanderlust, their simple joy in exploring. Another line of argument chalks it up to more naked greed, a desire to discover some natural resources worth extracting before they returned home in an attempt to win for themselves some material reward for all their suffering. And indeed, Cabeza de Vaca's narrative is filled with surveyor-style observations. He's always noting areas where there are good pastures for cattle, fertile soils for agriculture, or signs of riches to be mined. To be fair, this was very explicitly a part of his commission from the king, And when he sits down to write his narrative, he is, in his mind, fulfilling that original commission, quote, to inform us, us being the king, extensively and particularly of every matter, as well as all the rest you see and that I should be informed of, end quote. And Cabeza de Vaca took his duty to his king seriously. And the third reason that he offers also supports the idea that part of the justification for their turn inland was some sense of duty. Because it's at this point in the narrative, right as they're beginning to have this tension with their followers as to which direction they should go, that they overtake two women traveling up into the mountains northwest of them. The women recognized the expeditionaries as famous medicine men and stopped, offering them everything they had, as was the custom of the region. And inside one of the women's packs was something that the expeditionaries hadn't seen since Florida. Ground corn. Of course, in and of itself, the corn wasn't that interesting. The expeditionaries were no longer starving. But recall what we've said all along that corn symbolized for these men. It represented sedentary societies, the kinds of societies the Castilians could extract tribute from, the kinds of advanced civilizations upon which the Castilians' diplomatic skills and education were much more effective, and the kinds of mass populations that they might convert to Catholicism. Corn meant gold, glory, and God. And so meeting the women with ground corn in their packs was a great enticement to the four expeditionaries. They took it as a sign, almost. Maybe they also recalled the gourds that they had found in the previous episode, floating down the Rio Grande, also coming in from the northwest. And so this, too, by itself, might have been enough to turn the expeditionaries around away from their original goal. Of course, usually, when someone offers three different reasons for why they did something, 
It's because they don't really have a single clear reason. And I think the cold hard fact here is that the expeditionaries still have no idea where they are. But I also think they were feeling in this moment acutely uncomfortable with the religious movement that they had set off. At first, their medicine man routine was just exhausting. Then, it became downright destructive, and now, it was just straight up frightening. They had begun to feel that they lacked any real quote-unquote authority over the unruly band behind them, and they truly seemed to fear its violent edge. And so when they turned northwest, somewhere there in northern Tamaulipas, what they were also trying to do was to leave this band behind. And from the text, it seems like it was a bit of an uncertain proposition for them whether they were going to be able to get away from their followers, who protested loudly and erupted into sobs and wails when they saw them leaving. But the four expeditionaries apparently instilled enough fear in their followers at that moment that when they told them to stay back, they listened. And so here in the summer of 1535, the four expeditionaries were out on their own again for the first time in eight or nine months. After traveling for only two days, they found another quite sizable native community, despite their previous followers' insistence that there was nothing to be found by going in this direction. Now, their plan wasn't to give up the medicine man routine entirely. They just wanted to do it in a more restrained and controlled fashion. The problem was that by now their reputations preceded them throughout the entire region. And so when the inhabitants of this first village on the expeditionary's new northwesterly route saw them, they were terrified. What they had heard was that when these four appeared on the edge of your village, you could kiss your earthly belongings goodbye, as well as any sense of normalcy. Yet they also noticed in this instance, and unlike in the stories they had heard, that these four traveled alone with no ransacking mob behind them. And so a few of the native villagers held their ground and waited for the four medicine men to approach. As the four came forward, presumably Esteban began to speak to them. He told them that they came to spread good news and to heal the sick, that no, there wouldn't be any more ransacking. You don't need to worry about that. And so the villagers here dropped to their knees in gratitude. It's hard to tell if that gratitude came from a sense of reverence toward the four medicine men or from gratitude that they weren't going to be robbed. But in either case, the esteem that they had for Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Torrantes, and Esteban was instantaneous and was real. They took it so far that they refused even to drink water before the expeditionaries blessed it. Quote, so great was our authority amongst them, end quote. And there's that word, authority. This was a powerful moment of validation for the expeditionaries this feeling of recovering their authority, independent of any menacing mob behind them. As if to confirm this new independent authority, some local shamans came forward and gave the four two new ceremonial gourds, which Cabestavaca claims, quote, added to their authority, end quote. The four expeditionaries settled into the village that evening, thinking they had regained their autonomy, righted their course, and established for themselves some measure of control over their own destiny. And yet they awoke the next morning to screams. Their old followers, it seems, had caught up to them. They too had apparently known where this village was, despite what they had told the expeditionaries. But it's the poor villagers that you really have to feel for here, because they were so surprised by the arrival of the old followers that they hadn't even had a chance to hide their belongings. And so this time, the mob took everything. 
Of course, explaining all the while that they were robbing them in the name of the medicine men who were, quote, children of the sun, end quote, who came from the cielo, end quote, that we had the power to heal the sick and to kill them and other lies, end quote, essentially making a mockery of the authority that the expeditionaries believed they had recovered. There are two offhand mentions in Cabeza de Vaca's account of some principales, or headmen, if you want to call them that, amongst their mob of followers. These were the men who distributed all the booty after each episode of ritual pillaging, and it seems that these were the ones with whom Cabeza de Vaca and his companions had to negotiate in trying to set their course. Because these headmen seemed to have had their own agenda. Maybe the four expeditionaries weren't so much the instruments of the divine as they were instruments of some very clever native headmen. Of course, it wasn't as though the four expeditionaries had gotten nothing out of their previous arrangement. They got food, they got protection, and they got to keep moving. And so despite Cabeza de Vaca's laments about the mob's treatment of other natives, it was a devil's bargain that he and his companions had been willing to make after almost seven years as castaways. And maybe, when the headmen here returned with a vengeance to this new village on their northwestern course, they reminded the four expeditionaries of this. But this also fits with another pattern that we've noticed, that every time the four expeditionaries try to move along in a controlled, linear fashion, something smacks them back down. It goes back to even those first months when they were on the coast, when they made pacts with each other that they would march all the way to Panuco or die trying. It goes back to those few months the year before when they had stopped healing, when they were so scared of the powers that was welling up with inside them that they decided to try and make an honest living of it to become artisans and to make bows and arrows and mats. And in both cases, it didn't go any better for them than this instance had, when they had tried to reclaim their independence from the group of people that, frankly, were protecting them and helping them move toward their ultimate goal. And so there's something to this idea of them having to accept that they have to give themselves over to forces that they still can't fully control, that they still are, even with their great power as medicine men, in the service of something or someone greater than them. In this case, in the service of the group of followers that probably also did genuinely look to them as spiritual leaders, even if they were getting some material benefit out of the bargain as well. And yet, the expeditionary's little rebellion in this episode hadn't been entirely fruitless. They do seem to have won for themselves a bit more authority in front of their native followers and in front of the headmen that maybe were the ones calling the shots. And so from here on out, the four expeditionaries wouldn't be just carried along wherever the mob wanted to go. Their continuing forward momentum, which would only speed up from this point forward, would be the result of an ongoing, complex, and occasionally tense negotiation, to use Professor Andres Resendez's word, between the four medicine men and their followers that would keep them moving now up into modern-day Nuevo León in Coahuila on the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on therevardreport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, and was composed by Kevin Graham and is available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, 
Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>